Yo, what's up? This is your boy Derek Prince here at StrikeSevenSports.com. This is another episode of the Strike Seven Sports Podcast. Joined by my co-host Brian Bader, Leo and Seabury. Tonight, we continue our NFL preview, um, 2022 preview podcast episodes. First, we did the Green Bay Packers. We went on to New Orleans Saints. And now we discuss the local, I would say, well, we in Memphis, but down the road, the Tennessee Titans. And to do that, we got a... Uh, Eastern Freeze of the broadcast, the Broadway Sports Media Network. What's going on, man? Hey, guys. What's going on? How are y'all? I'm doing fine. Doing good. Doing good. All right, man. We're just going to go right into it. Um, Tennessee Titans have been, they've owned the AFC South for the past three seasons. Um, they got into the playoffs in 2019, had a deep run with Derrick Henry going for 2,000 yards. He fell to the Kansas City Chiefs in the uh, AFC Championship game. Following year, you got the number one seed. Well, not number one seed, but you had a Tannehill had a had pretty much like a breakout season for the Titans, but it fell short in the playoffs once again. Last year was the number one seed. You fell to the Bengals despite you know sacking Joe Burrow nine times in the game. And you go in the off season, there was some talk about Titans drafting a quarterback and certain people disagreeing and thinking that that's probably a reach, but they went ahead and draft Malik Willis. And with things going on in Indianapolis, with them taking um, training for uh, Matt Ryan, I just want to ask you for this type of season, what type of seasons is 2022 going to be for the Titans? Uh, a rebuilding year or a retooling year or a, uh, a playoff contending year? So my answer is kind of both. I actually wrote an article of, about this topic following the Titans draft this year. Um, you know, I think the consensus going into the draft was that this team was still certainly in contention, needed to make some moves in some specific places, but they were mostly drafting for depth, um, especially on the offensive side of the ball that struggled the most last year. The defense took a big step in the right direction. Um, nice. Personnel wise, they kept everybody uh, minus uh their cornerback two, uh, Jackrabbit Jenkins, uh, was was not re-signed, but everybody else, you've got 10 returning starters for the defense, um, and Jackrabbit Jenkins' role should be filled by, um, the idea was Caleb Farley, their first-round pick two years ago, coming off of his injury last year that ended his season. He'd be back this year in time to fill in that spot, and so they'd mostly be able to focus on the offense, bolstering the offensive line, um, putting some pieces around AJ Brown to make it a, a, a more a more three-dimensional passing game. And then all of that went out the window immediately out of the gate when they trade AJ Brown away to the Eagles and move up in the first round to draft Traylon Burks out of Arkansas. And so um, that was kind of the theme of their draft throughout was that this team doesn't see themselves the way that, that you see them. Um, and by you, I mean fans, right? they they see themselves as a much more complete roster than I think most folks on the outside do. And uh, because of that, they didn't make all of the moves that a lot of people thought that they may have. But but the article that I wrote was was essentially called why the I forget what I what I called it just a couple months ago, but it was essentially why the Titans are in both a rebuilding and and uh, competitive season. I kind of termed it the pivot. Um, I think this is a competitive rebuild rebuild year for them. I think they still see their roster as too talented at certain positions, especially the defensive side of the ball. And then you've still got juice left in guys like Henry Taylor. Lewan. Um, you've got some really competitive p- 
veteran pieces on the offensive side of the ball. Regardless of what you think of Ryan Tannehill, he's still certainly a starter in this league. And he's got some more weapons around him that are established, like Austin Hooper at tight end and Robert Woods at wide receiver. But they do have some significant turnover in some key places, such as their wide receiver core and the offensive line is starting to become kind of a work in progress and uh, not fall apart at the seams. But but I guess really this season, if you gun to my head, you told me that the Titans season fell apart this year. Why was it? My answer without hesitation is it had to have been the offensive line. If there's something that's going to derail this this Titan season, it will be the the offensive line. And that's not to say that I think that will be the case. Um, I think that I, I personally I think that it will it will be harder for the offensive line to be much worse than they were last year, especially in the the pass blocking department. Obviously, this offensive line has never had an issue run blocking. Now you can argue whether it's the chicken or the egg in terms of does Henry right. make the, the offensive line look better in the run game or does the offensive line make Henry look a little bit better in the run game. But the point is right. the two of them get the job done one way or another. But in the pass blocking game, Ryan Tannehill took twice as many hits last season as he should have. And so um, I find it hard to believe that they'll be worse than that this year. Now maybe they're just as bad. And if that's the case, we know that that's very difficult in the postseason to, to go very far without a decent offensive line, pay no attention to the Bengals behind the curtain last year who managed to do it, but they are certainly the uh, exception, not the rule. So uh, yeah, I think that this is to answer the question. I think that this is a competitive year for the Titans. I I think they certainly still see themselves as one of the top teams in the AFC. I think that like any smart team in front office, they look primarily at their division and they see arguably the weakest division or at the very least one of the two weakest divisions in the entire league that they happen to find themselves in. And I think they can, I think that they think they can still take an advantage of that. Um, and you know, in the NFL, really all you have to do is win your division and then you get to the playoffs and it's any given Sunday, that's kind of the mentality. And you can tell that's the mentality of this team because they think that as long as they can still win this division, they have as good a chance as anybody else. And they clearly think they can still win the division. However, they do have some significant, unlike last year where you could tell this team was kind of all in, they were looking at that year as we've got a team that can go all the way. Let's focus on this year. Let's make some big moves. Let's go trade away a second round pick for Julio Jones. Um, Those kind of moves. Let's go spend a ton of money on Bud Dupree to bolster the defense. This year, you can tell that they don't have the blinders on for just 2022. They're not going full LA Rams with their with their salary cap and with their roster situation. They are looking to the future and you can see that in certain draft picks like taking a corner second overall and and keeping the cornerback depth uh uh healthy with a guy like with a guy like Roger McCreary out of Auburn. You can see obviously in in picking Malik Willis third overall, um looking towards the future in that way. Nicholas Petit Friere out of Ohio State in the in the not third overall, third round. And uh NPF in the third round as well. They're making some of these these moves that at the time you could tell this is not necessarily for this season. This is looking forward. All right. Brian got to do that. Yeah, I was wondering Malik Willis. I was really excited when the time dropped to him. What do you think the plan for him should be? I personally think there's some rumors flying around that they may redshirt him and I'd be fine with that because next year, as you know, the Titans can move off of Ryan Tannehill and they can give the keys to the offense to Malik Willis or best case scenario could also be Ryan Tannehill does well. Then he's at least here one more season. Then his contract runs out in 2024. Then you could either keep Ryan Tannehill or give the keys to Malik Willis then. And he would have had more time to develop 
what do you think the Titans should do? Well, Brian, I, I, and this is not the most popular opinion, but it is an opinion that I believe strongly. And I, I think that what you, the second thing that you said is the most likely scenario. Um, I've been to camp a handful of times. Um, I've, I've been to the preseason games. I've, I've seen all of this up close. And obviously I, I cover the Titans for a living. So I am, am well acquainted with how Malik Willis has done in his first uh, month and change of, of NFL practice and uh, preseason games. And while he's made some development, I can very confidently say that I, I think it's more likely that Ryan Tannehill gets at least another year extension and plays at two more years in Tennessee than it is that Malik Willis is given the keys next season and Tannehill leaves. Now, that's not something that I've believed from the beginning. I think that in an ideal world, just in terms of team building, salary cap, um, you know, the way that the league works in, in 2022 and the, the way that offense is incentivized to play. I think that the team would prefer for Malik Willis to be in a position for them to be comfortable, to hand him the keys in 2023 and to let Ryan Tannehill walk after this last year. However, I don't think that he's going to be ready to do that. There's certain, I can tell you with certainty, he is going to be redshirted this year. And while he may be on the active roster, in local Titan circles, there's a lot of debate in the last couple of weeks as to whether the Titans will keep two or three quarterbacks. It's certainly not a done deal that Malik Willis is even the, the second string quarterback. Logan Woodside, who is the definition of the most boring backup you've you've ever seen in your life. Um, they love him. The, the front office and the, the coaches love him because he is um, a player coach. He's a veteran. He knows this playbook inside and out. He can operate the offense. He essentially acts as um, a bit of a coach in practice and is, is working with a lot of the depth guys and makes them better. And so they, they like this guy. However, physically it's just, he's don't, he don't, he don't have it. He doesn't have it. He, he is one of the most inaccurate quarterbacks you, you can see in the league. Um, his decision-making is good, but it's oftentimes slow. Um, and so he's a guy that fans, there's nothing to get excited about at all whatsoever. And, and in terms of, guys that you think their ceiling could be high enough for you to still have a chance should Ryan Tannehill go down. He is not on that list. If he is your backup and Ryan Tannehill goes down, he is only coming into a game to try to keep you from losing. He is not coming into a game to try to win the game. It's not, he's, it's not in his DNA. He can't do it. Um, Malik Willis, the ceiling is significantly higher. However, his floor is also dramatically lower because, you know, he played at Liberty. He's, he's a really raw prospect. He's, I mean, he's been compared to the Josh Allen's of the world in terms of just how raw he is coming out. And, and you can see just in his first month, the, there was some stuff early on in training camp. Like he, he, the, the most noticeable thing when he showed up was that rolling to the left, moving to his left, his weak side, he could not throw the ball comfortably. He could obviously could throw the ball, but, but it just looked so unnatural. And you'd watch the drills where Tannehill and Woodside would go first and then it'd be Willis. And you'd be like, Oh man, that, that looks rough. Like two of these things are very different than the third. Then you look at him today and we got the first look at him in, in practice doing the same drill in a little bit. And it, it's night and day. He looks like he belongs in that group of guys. And so his development is already, there's tangible results, but there's a lot in terms of his mental processing of the game that he's just going to have to get reps and time in order to be able to handle it at an NFL level. If you've watched any of the preseason games, you know he is struggling to pull the trigger and throw the ball. He's so athletic. Um, 
and that's you know electric and fun to watch as a fan but it it leads to bad habits of wanting to you know uh uh bail on clean pockets and and uh check one read and if it's not there just take the ball and, and run as far as you can. And, and he's great at it. He's, he's really fantastic at it, but he's just got to learn to throw the ball downfield or else he's not going to make it in the NFL. We know that. Right. And so um, that's just a matter of mentally being able to, to know how to get through your reads and, and make a decision in a, in a reasonable amount of time. He, he looked better in a second game, but if you look at the advanced metrics, he had almost double the amount of time to throw that any other preseason quarterback has had in these first two weeks of preseason so he's getting way more, he's getting like four and a half seconds to throw each time he drops back um which is like double what you would typically get in real live nfl action and so it's got to get faster than that if he's all if he's already struggling to throw with double the amount of time he typically has if you were to throw him into a game today a real game this this year it would be a lot of running and questionable decision making um so yeah, not to be too long-winded, but Malik Willis, I think that he has, he's a lottery ticket, right? He's a, he's the equivalent of a million lottery tickets handed to you. Like you're probably thinking, okay, this guy just gave me a thousand lottery tickets. I'm probably not going to win big on any of these, but there's a lot of like, there's a decent chance that I might, I might. And if I do, it's going to rock. And if I don't, I won't be disappointed because I bought these thousand lottery tickets in the third round and not the first. So if he ends up not panning out, it's no harm, no foul, really. Seabury, what you got? Um, really, my first question is kind of a direct question, and I know that age and attrition played a role in this, but why didn't Julio Jones work out in Tennessee? It's a good question. I mean, it's certainly the, the most reasonable answer is he just wasn't available. Um, you, you saw what he was still capable of doing when he was available in very small flashes. I mean, in the Seahawks game week two, when A.J. Brown was, was out and it, he was kind of running the show, he looked really good in that game. Uh, he had some really impressive plays in week 16, I believe, uh, at, on Thursday Night Football against San Francisco. That was the game where uh, if it weren't for A.J. Brown, you probably would have been talking about Julio Jones in that game. But A.J. Brown had his his best game of the year uh, and kind of single-handedly won that game. But um, outside of those two games, not only was he not available for games and had to go on IR for a stint and, and missed back-to-back games a handful of times on top of that, he couldn't, the games that he did start in, he really struggled to finish. And so his snap, his snap share in those games would be lower than you would, you would want it to be. And oftentimes you'd get to the midpoint of the fourth quarter of a game that's tight and he'd be calling to sub out and not be on the field for the final drive or two of the game. And you'd be like, where is wide receiver two? Instead, you've got a depth guy out there who you just, you don't, you can't have out there on a, on a drive where you need to win the game. I mean, that final drive of the game, where uh, of the playoff game where the, where the Titans were, were marching down the field, um, t- uh, I believe tied with the Bengals, but they had plenty of time to get into field goal range and win the game and move on to the AFC championship game, hosting it in Nissan stadium. They didn't have Julio on the field. They had Nick Westbrook Aquino, which, you know, God love him. He's a great wide receiver three, but you don't want him as your wide receiver two or one. He's proven that time. And again, he doesn't have the size uh, to really, to really be physical in the way that you need to be uh, at at those positions and he doesn't have the speed and separation ability to do that. And so it's, that was kind of a boil it down. What has been the frustration with Julio Jones this year? Oh, look, it's the final, it's the final drive of the season. We need to throw the ball to move the ball, to win the game. And Julio Jones isn't out there. He was in this game. He wasn't hurt for this game. He was in this game, but he he wasn't out there 
for the last drive. Why? And so that's really what it was is this guy, when a 35 year old wide receiver starts having soft tissue injuries in their legs, especially the hamstring, that's not typically a problem that just goes away. That typically only gets worse. Right. And so that's the calculation that the Titans front office had to make. They decided to save $9 million and spend it on some other guys like Austin Hooper and, and some of these rookies that so far have been panning out for them instead of bring Julio Jones back on the hope that he can stay healthy. Cause like I said, if he stays healthy in, in, in uh, Tampa Bay this year, you're going to, you're going to think, why did the Titans move on from this guy? What were they thinking? Well, it's because he's not been three years straight. Now he's proven that he cannot stay on the field for even half of the season. Gotcha. Um, That's what's up. Okay. Got anything else? Uh, one more. Yeah. I'm going to add one more thing with, with the issues that, that you are, that uh, the Tigers had a wide receiver. Why did, um, I, what, like, I, I understand that, the scenario of the AJ Brown trade, and it really was a short-term loss for a long-term investment when they end up, because they end up getting uh, Traylon Burks, who uh, people, well, most people think that will be their wide right, right receiver one, if uh, soon. Why, why, why would they trade arguably one of their most rep- productive receivers in AJ Brown? Like, what, what was the backdrop in that? Well, not only, I mean, he certainly was their most productive wide receiver. I've made the argument before he was traded and also after that I think that he's the best wide receiver the Titans franchise has ever had. Um, statistically that is borne out. Um, and it's not a super long list and the Titans have only been in Nashville for a couple decades, but he's, I think certainly the best. His only competition is Derek Mason really, who obviously a fantastic receiver in his own right, but already in his short career, AJ Brown has put up numbers that rival some of Derek Mason's best years. And so moving on from him on paper, certainly a dramatic move, certainly a highly questionable move on the surface. There was some kind of some inside baseball politics to this at the time. Um, it was reported by one of my, uh, one of my colleagues, um, Teron Davenport for ESPN at the time that, uh, he got, he got AJ side of the story, essentially on draft night, he called AJ and spoke to him about it. And, and then Diana Rossini for ESPN a couple of days later came out with a report from the Titan side of things. And these two reports directly clashed with one another, right? We know this story. The truth, as is usually the case, is somewhere in the middle. Um, It's true that the Titans as an organization, the way that they're built, similar to a New England organization, um, they don't value the passing game nearly as much as most other teams in the league do. Part of that is a philosophy in terms of they just want to be an old school smash mouth ground and pound team and they do it well. And that's kind of the ethos of a Mike Vrabel, right? Part of that is the personnel that they have. The Titans, for all of their offensive line questions in the in the passing game, their offensive line consistently for almost half a decade now has been fantastic in the run blocking game. They also have Derrick Henry running the ball. So you you have to, I mean, you can't gloss over that combination when you've got it. You've got, you've got to make, you've got to make hay while the sun shines there. And in order to do that, you have to implement a style of play action passing game that is high in explosive plays, but low in volume. And that doesn't lend itself to paying a wide receiver $25 million, right? Like AJ Brown made his money on those highly explosive plays getting the ball and every time he got the ball, getting yards after after the catch and, and making the most of what he got. But in terms of volume, it was lower. And so his production was lower. Um, 
and and it didn't it didn't reach the it didn't reach the level that a lot of twenty five million dollar a year wide receivers were were or have have been putting up, and so they just they couldn't make that make they couldn't make that come out in the wash financially. Um, but on, on the other side of the coin, I mean AJ Brown, all signs point to AJ Brown didn't really want to be here anymore. Um, at at the time, and perhaps. I mean, we don't, I, I can't, I'm, I'm not here to tell you how people feel. I can't tell you whether this is how he truly felt, whether he, you know, liked Tennessee, but felt like this was in his best interest financially, whether he wanted to stay here and was, was informed by somebody in his camp or in um, one of his agents gave him bad advice and told him to play his cards this way. And, and it caused him to, to do this. But I mean, before the Titan, the week before the draft, that Thursday night of the draft was the first that that GM John Robinson made a call to the Eagles, and that that trade came to fruition just a couple of hours before the first round began. So it certainly wasn't something that was in the works until the very last second. It wasn't until that week, just a couple of days before that first round on Thursday, that AJ Brown quietly went to the team and requested a trade. Um, and and so, like I said, perhaps he really wanted out. Perhaps he was told he should do that as a leverage tool to try to get a better contract. But regardless, what we know, the facts are the week prior to the NFL draft, he was training in Philadelphia with Jalen Hurts, who it's been long documented is his best friend, like in real life, like their BFFs, they train in the off season, they chat all the time. They both talk about in public how they are great friends and have been great friends since college. Um, so he was training with Jalen Hurts the week before the draft. He reportedly told Jalen Hurts, if I don't get this contract done in Tennessee, tell your guys to come get me. Jalen Hurts went and told his guys, go get him. And A.J. Brown requested a trade a couple of days before he was traded from the team that was willing to pay him around 20 to $22 million a year, but not willing to meet him at his $25 million million a year asking number. So all of that being said, the math just didn't make sense. The philosophy of this team isn't compatible with a $25 million a year receiver. And really the nail in the coffin was it was a receiver that didn't really want to be here. It seems pretty clear to me that, you know, yeah, he may have, he may, this may have been his first choice. He may have preferred to be here. I certainly, he didn't show any, you know, lack. He didn't, he didn't lack any love for Tennessee in his time here until the very end, but clearly it didn't bother him all that much to move on. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So there's no chance we see Malik Willis on the field at all. If the Titans start off well, like two and six, two and seven. No, I don't. I I don't think so. Um, I mean, so to your first question, is there any chance we see Malik Willis on the field? I think even if they're good, there's a chance that you see Malik Willis in a specialty package situation on a re- relatively regular basis. You may see him come in like a Marcus Mariota for the Raiders, like a Trey Lance in his first year last year for the, or yeah, for the Niners. Um, like, you know, like these guys that have, have been kind of gadget guys that have come in at, at quarterback. Um, now, obviously that's not unlike, you know, the Marcus Mariota's of the Raiders, that's not his ceiling. That's not the goal is to like, let's just make him the gadget guy to come in Cam Newton late career. Let's have him come in and do that. That's not the goal. However, 
he is an electric piece of their of their offense that they have, and I think they'd be foolish not to use um, and and kind of kill two birds with with one stone, get him some experience in the regular season in real football against real real defenses, and so wouldn't shock me at all if you had one or two plays a week schemed up for him to do that, and he was dressed on most weeks. It would it wouldn't shock me if he wasn't dressing at all to begin with. Now maybe that's maybe that's something that comes later on down the road in the season. And maybe that's just a calculation they have to make based on who they have available. You can only have so many guys dressed, right? So I don't know, but it would not shock me in the slightest if he dresses every week and was in there for a play or two. Now, in your scenario, if the Titans just if the wheels fall off and they go, you know, they open two and six or whatever, do you see him come in? I'm still inclined to say no. Um my initial response is there. I don't see a scenario in which they're going two and six unless Ryan Tannehill gets hurt. I think as long as Ryan Tannehill is healthy and playing quarterback, I mean, you saw what they did last year when it was Ryan Ta- for a good stretch of the year, it was Ryan Tannehill and yeah. pretty much nobody else. And they still won a bunch of games. Um, the most games in the whole AFC. In fact, so the idea that they're going to just bottom out, I don't see that happening unless they lose their quarterback. Now, if, you know, you lose a ton. Like if it just becomes a mass unit again, by the way, because the Titans last year, 93 different players throughout the season, the most players used by any NFL team in the history of the league. If it became a mass unit again and, you know, Tannehill was healthy, but everybody else on both sides of the ball, you know, in that stretch last year where they were good, despite it just being Tannehill, they were being held afloat by a dominant defense. So if let's say the, the offense, let's say the offense stays healthy, but they just can't get things going with all these new pieces and the defense is what falls apart. I still think they roll with Ryan Tannehill. They're paying him so much money. Malik Willis, They even if it became a thing like this season is is just scuttled, like we're two and nine, it's over, we're already out of the playoffs, whatever led to this happening, we're done. Do we move on and put Malik Willis in there? It'll really be dependent on where Malik Willis is in terms of his development because what you don't want to do is throw a, a raw guy like that out there in a situation that if they're two and nine, clearly not conducive to success, right? Like it's things aren't going to go great for him. If you throw him, if Tannehill is losing all these games in there, Malik Willis ain't going to, ain't going to change that picture. Um, so I still think that they don't, especially with a guy that, like I said earlier, I don't expect him to be ready next year, let alone the end of this year. Gotcha. All right, moving right along. Go ahead. Yeah. I just want to say one thing. I kind of disagree with you. If they, if you're saying they're eliminated, I think that'd be the perfect time to put him in because the the reason why I feel that way is because like you have you could start his development process early. Is he raw? Yeah, he's extremely raw. But that I feel like the best way you can get ready is by playing. Like that's I'm not a 49ers fan, but I think it's a little different situation. But I think that's one mistake they made with Trey Lance. They could have and he did play a little bit because Jimmy Garoppolo got hurt but I think they should have played them earlier than they end up doing. That's just my opinion. But well, there's certainly some truth to that, right? You like, you have to, you have to get in there and then make the mistakes in order to develop. I guess my point is it's really situational. And if it's, if it's a situation that is, he's just going to get murdered in there. Like there, there are certainly situations, especially on crappy NFL teams where it's no longer conducive to development. You'd actually be, you'd be going backwards in terms of progress because your situation is so bad that you're forced to, especially with an athletic guy like Malik, you're forced to, f- to form bad habits and constantly bail on the pocket and not throw the ball downfield and try to just play recess ball. Right. So I think it'll just depend on what it looks like. 
Could I have one more question? I'm sorry, TV. I just this all coming to me. Uh, Todd Downing. A lot of Titans fans don't like him. I think he he did all right, but there are some questionable play calls in the playoff game, especially, and a lot of people put it on Ryan Tannehill. Do you see a point eventually where Tim Kelly's in the Titans offensive coordinator? Um, in title, no. Um, I think you know it would that would that would require Todd Downing to get fired, which I think is certainly not out of the realm of possibility by any means because I don't think he was all right last year. I think he was quite bad. Um, although I can certainly acknowledge that he was quite bad certainly at least in some part due to playing with one of the crappiest hands in the NFL in terms of the offensive personnel he had at his disposal. So that's certainly part of it. And I think it's only fair to give him a year where he has healthy starting caliber offensive pieces to play with. But if he were to get fired, I don't think they would just go with Tim Kelly. Now maybe they would, and I wouldn't have any arguments with that because I I'm quite a fan of Tim Kelly. I thought that it was a great move when they brought him in. Um, however, outside of the official title being designated to Tim Kelly, I think that it is certainly a possibility this season, if not potentially already the case that in function, I guess, functionally, Tim Kelly may already kind of be the offensive coordinator. You know, there was a lot of talk last year, um, when you had Jim Schwartz come in to be a senior defensive, um, I don't know, senior defensive supervisor. No, it was senior defensive uh, advisor, I believe. Uh, senior defensive advisor. Whatever it was, it was a very vague title, right? That's the point. Yeah. It was not it's not defensive coordinator. It wasn't assistant D coordinator. It wasn't a position coach. He was just some kind of advisory role, a senior advisory role. And yet, the defense made some pretty significant strides. And, oh, would you look at that? You look at Jim Schwartz patented defensive technique throughout his career, and it's Jim Schwartz's fingerprints all over the Titans new and improved defense. Funny how that works. And Shane Bowen suddenly became a stud defensive coordinator. Could we see that same thing happen in the offense this year with Tim Kelly secretly pulling some strings behind the scenes? And suddenly Todd Downing looks like new and improved. Do you forget about the old Todd Downing, Todd Downing? Sure. That could certainly be the case. And I think if that is the case, then you're left to question who's really in charge here. Okay. All right. So just give us some insight on rookie wide receiver Traylon Burks. Just from your own viewpoint, how's this progression going? So Traylon has been um overall good. There have been some things that have been questionable. Um I'll say this off the top, the first camp practice that I went to this year, you got in and just watching the wide receivers do their individual drills and then work in one-on-ones and then work in team team drills. If you were an alien and you came down and, and you were watching football for the first time, you didn't know any of these guys, you were just watching them nameless, faceless players and evaluating their pure skill. You could look at that wide receiver group and be like, I don't know who those two at the front of the line are, but they're clearly better than everybody else. And that's Robert Woods and Traylon Burks. Now with Traylon, that's not nearly as skill-based as it is with Robert Woods. Robert Woods, obviously his, his physical appearance and his, and his God-given, you know, measurables are quite adequate in the NFL, but it's 
his veteran knowledge of the game, his work ethic, his polished route running, his polished footwork, everything that makes him an elite wide receiver in the NFL, that's what really sticks out about him. The thing about Traylon Burks is perhaps the opposite. You know, there's been a lot of comparisons both pre-draft and post-draft of Traylon Burks right. to AJ Brown, right? In in college, that was it, it made sense as a comp, a comp. You've got AJ Brown as the yards after catch guy, impossible to tackle, big body receiver, um and that was kind of what Burks was in college as well. However, while I see that comp, I will raise you what I think is a better comp in DK Metcalf. Um, AJ Brown came into the league a significantly more polished route runner than Traylon Burks currently is. DK Metcalf was a very bad route runner at the beginning of his career. And I think we all saw that in the fact that you would watch those early wide receiver, early Seahawks games and DK would be running routes that were honestly quite bad. And yet he's just so big and physical and fast and stronger than the DB he's on. If he got his hands on the ball, he was going to catch it, and then you're screwed, right? That was the whole thing with DK. That's and, and then he was able to lean on that as he developed as a route runner, and now he's certainly much more up to speed on those other important wide receiver um, uh, techniques and such. With Traylon, that's what I see. He's a, a big-body guy. If he gets his hands on the ball, you're in trouble. Um, he's developing as a route runner, but clearly his route running and his footwork um, – are on the lacking side, but he makes up for it just in his, his breakaway speed, his ability to be incredibly physical and almost always bigger than the defender on him. And he's just a gamer. He's just, he's just a, a natural born wide receiver. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that you think over time, as long as he stays healthy, he's going to develop into a really nice wide receiver. There have been some health concerns, just a few, um, I know today was the first day he did not participate in team any team uh, drills at camp. And so the last couple of, I believe it was the beginning of last week when he first was dealing with some issues with, I think, reasonably assumed based on where he was grabbing on his leg in practice when he went down, just a little bit of a hamstring issue. It's kept him in and out of some um, some drills in practice. He was in the preseason game last week, but was coming off and icing his leg. Uh, today was the first day he had a wrap on his leg and wasn't participating in team drills. So that's certainly a little bit of a concern. Now, it's not kept him out of anything major, um, and the team hasn't you know, given him any designation in terms of an injury. So it'll, I think it'll be really telling and interesting to see what kind of participation he has here in a couple of days on Saturday night uh, in the third and final preseason game. He's a guy that I think if he stays healthy, he will be your certainly wide receiver 1A by the end of the year. I think that Robert Woods is going to come out, even though he's coming off of a you know significant ACL injury. I, I Based on, I mean, watching him even a month ago in practice, only six, seven months removed from his ACL surgery. Because if you remember, he tore it, I believe, in December last year at the very end of the season in a Rams practice, you would not know that this guy had any kind of knee issues. There's no sleeve. There's no uh, brace. There's no, Oh, he's sitting out certain drills that are high impact. Oh, he's sitting out of certain full contact drills. Oh, he's, you know, going every other day or, Oh, he's spending some extra time on the bike. Like there's none of that. There's no indication whatsoever. Physically, uh, uh, visually that is 
that he's dealing with any knee injury issues. So I think he's going to be full go out of the gate. And I think he's going to be the wide receiver one for this team for at least the first couple of games. It wouldn't shock me if he ends up being their wide receiver one statistically throughout the entire year. But by the end of the year, I think as long, again, as long as Traylon stays healthy, I think the two of them will be kind of your one, a one B a la Godwin and Mike Evans in Tampa Bay, where they're playing a different game, but they're both getting a pretty similar share and a pretty high share. Now, a little bonus. I, I know you didn't ask about this, but I am, I'd be remiss not to mention a, another guy to keep an eye on on this team. It's also a rookie. It's also a wide receiver. And that's Kyle Phillips. Kyle Phillips looks fantastic so far through preseason, through camp. This is the guy, if you're that alien watching the wide receivers, you point to him and you say, okay, his game doesn't look anything like those first two guys who are clearly the most talented and the best guys. However, He's way better than all the other guys. And oh, you're oh, he was a fifth round draft pick. Oh, he's coming out of US, UCLA and no one's ever heard of him. Like, oh, they're they're about to hear about Kyle Phillips because Kyle Phillips is going to, if not start week one, which I think he might start week one and surprise some people, he's going to get a significant snap count week one, regardless of whether he's out there on the first snap of offense or not. This is a guy that I if I were if I were a betting man and I am. Uh, I, I would, I would certainly consider if, if this bet exists, like it wouldn't shock me at all. If at the end of the season, Kyle Phillips has 800 yards and eight touchdowns. This This is a guy that is, despite being a fifth round draft pick, that fifth round value from the league has a lot less to do with his NFL ready capability and has a lot more to do with his ceiling in terms of wide receiver. He's definitely a slot only guy. He's only ever going to be a slot only guy. That's fine. In the NFL, the slot is rapidly becoming a more and more valuable position. In terms of his NFL readiness, there may not have been a wide receiver in this class, including the first round wide receivers that were more NFL ready than Kyle Phillips is. This is a guy that in terms of his footwork, his finesse, his polish, all of the important things that most college receivers come into the league needing to develop in their first, second, third year. The thing that keeps them from being a stud out of the gate, even if they are like Traylon Burks, incredibly God given gifted athletes. The thing that holds them back from truly breaking the game out of the gate. He's got all of that. He just doesn't have the crazy high end outside wide receiver physical traits. So this is a guy that, I mean, I've watched at this point, hundreds of one-on-one drills every single day at, at practicing camp. And I can, not exaggerating, not to name a single one-on-one rep in practice that I have seen him lose. Not a single one. If you get this guy in the red zone in a one-on-one matchup, he's going to get open. And if you throw the ball to him, he's going to catch the ball. So this is a guy that if he ends up being, like if it ends up being the end of the year, statistically, Robert Woods was the leading receiver on this team. And then Kyle Phillips, that shouldn't shock you. Gotcha. Seabury, you got anything? No, I didn't have it. No, I didn't have everything. I just had a quick – well, take that back. I'm going to add one more little snippet to it. Um, What would you say um, – we've been talking about the defense offense a lot. Defensively, um, did, would you expect that, like, to Titans, people who are watching the Titans this year, expect them to remain elite, as good as they were defensively last year? Are they going to are they going to steps forward, or could they regress a little bit? So defense is always a tricky thing because, unlike offense – Year to year, defensive regression is not very linear. It's pretty hard to tell 
how a defense is going to perform one year based on their performance the year before, at least in terms of analytics. It's pretty random. I mean, if you look at the Titans defense of 2020, which was on the decline, and then personnel-wise, they made some moves, but not enough to make you think, oh, this might be a top 10 defense in the league. Maybe they'll just be passable. Maybe they'll be middle of the league. Suddenly, they by the end of last year, were a top three defense, certainly a top three defensive front. Like, is uh, is this the best defense in the league? Like, that's where they were by the end of the year, sacking Joe Burrow nine times in the playoff game, a playoff record. Is that where they're going to begin this year? Well, historically, statistically, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. We We know that there have been countless defenses in the past that all indications were they'd pick up right where they left off and they weren't nearly as good. And the inverse is true as well. Defenses that there's no reason to think they'll be any better. And suddenly they just put it together. Statistics and analytics aside, I can't point to a reason why they'd be any worse, if not better. Like I said, this is a a defensive side of the ball that has 10 of their 11 starters returning. The one starter that's not returning was an aging cornerback that they've replaced with their first round cornerback, freaky athlete, Caleb Farley from two years ago. And their second round pick this year, uh, Roger McCreary out of Auburn, who despite having short arms and, and questionable measurables is kind of his, his record so far in practice has been kind of impeachable. He's been one of, if not the most impressive new guy on the defensive side of the ball. He currently in terms of rep share, looking like he may beat out Caleb Farley to be the starting cornerback uh, outside corner back uh, on the opposite side of Christian Fulton to begin the year. He's a guy that just came off of being the best cornerback in the entire SEC last year. Again, despite having tiny little T-Rex arms by cornerback standards, he, I mean, he played with the best wide receivers in the nation last year in the SEC and had one of, if not the best cornerback season of any SEC corner in SEC history. So he clearly can hang with the best despite measure in terms of measurables, not being the the most impressive athlete. So you've got those two guys filling in for that role. Um, if there's a, I mean, and then you've got the best safety room in the league in Amani Hooker and Kevin Byer, who's the best safety in the league. So the defensive front isn't going to change at all. You've still got the front four of Jeffrey Simmons, Danico Autry, Harold Landry, uh, Bud Dupree backed up by Zach Cunningham and David Long Jr. at linebacker. All six of those guys, veterans, proven commodities. I don't see any, there is no reason why they would not continue to be incredibly lethal, especially in their sim, in the simulated pressure game, being able to, to really confuse offensive lines and wreak havoc up front. If there's a position on the defense that is the, the weak point, is the downfall of this defense, You'd have to point to cornerback, not because there's a lack of talent or a lack of depth. They lack neither, but because there is a lack of proven commodity there. Like I said, it's arguably talent-wise a top five cornerback room in the league, but it is certainly top five in the league in youth. I mean, your senior starting cornerback in this room is Christian Fulton entering his third year. After that, you've got Caleb Farley in technically his second year, although really his first year of play. You've got Elijah Molden entering his second year of play. You've got um, you've got uh, Chris Jackson entering his third year of play. You have uh, 
totally blanking on um, it's late. I'm the names are all going together. Chris Jackson in his third year of play. Uh, Roger McCreary. That's who I'm, that's who I couldn't, we were just talking about him. Roger McCreary in his first year of play, all these guys, three, three years or younger in the NFL. Um, and so there's still a lot to be proven there in terms of proven commodities. You'd have to say, okay, Elijah Molden has proven himself to be an above average slot corner, but low ceiling. Um, Caleb Farley hasn't proven himself. Roger McCreary hasn't proven himself. Chris Jackson hasn't really proven himself as a starter. Christian Fulton, really the only guy that has proven himself to be a true cornerback one in this league. And that's great. But you know, all of these, all of these guys, despite having immense talent, it's projections at this point. So we have to see it pan out on the field. But last year they had a kind of suspect cornerback room for a lot of the year. And it didn't matter because as long as you've got a lot of incredible simulated pressure action up front and the defensive front is wreaking havoc. And then you've got, like I said, the best safety room in the league who did a lot of babysitting last year in terms of uh, kind of erasing the mistakes of the cornerback room. Those two guys can take the secondary and erase massive mistakes while the defense defensive front wreaks havoc and it, it may not really matter if the cornerbacks turn into uh what their potential is okay all right so for derrick henry what type of numbers you expecting this year um coming off his a uh, year where he, he was almost was about to lead the league in rush for a third time but had that uh that foot injury that cut his season a little short like i can have a, i think he had like a 980 yards rushing what you think the numbers are gonna look like for this season so it's a fascinating conversation because obviously he's coming off of an injury. And so a lot of people, um, I think reasonably, but mistakenly are talking about is Henry's injury going to lead to him not being the same guy, which makes sense. A lot of times with injuries in the league, guys get an injury and then it's never the same, right? Like Julio Jones starts to deal with hamstring injuries and that's just, he's never the same after that. Um, the thing about this injury that that Derrick Henry sustained, breaking his fifth metatarsal in his foot, we're in, we're in an age of analytics at this point, right? And there are, in fact, injury analytics now that you can look at different injuries, how they affect players coming back, all of this in terms of uh, how, how quickly they come back, at what percentage they play post-injury versus pre-injury, all of that. With this injury, you look at it, and it's it is a work load adjacent injury, meaning that so it certainly can be caused by too high of a workload. Um, however, it's not necessarily caused by too high of a, work, a workload. Sometimes it's just a fluke. So I think with Derrick Henry having 900 yards through his first six or seven games last year, it's certainly reasonable to assume eh, it might have been due to a little bit of a higher workload than necessary. Um, and I, that's kind of a bell that I was ringing throughout the year. Like, Hey, they should probably lay off of the 30 plus, uh, carry 30 plus carry games in a row, which they would not. And, you know, it worked until it didn't. And yet, um, despite it probably having been a stress related injury, a workload related injury, it's not an injury historically, according to the injury analytics that players come back from and deal with lingering issues. It, it's the kind of thing that almost like an ACL, once it's surgically repaired, um, you now have steel, a human-made reconstruction in there. It is stronger than it was before. So that's the misconception of if Derek falls off, oh, it's because that injury, he's just never the same. That That's going to be a narrative, but those people are, are going to be wrong. However, it's certainly possible that he falls off, and the real reason will, instead of the injury, be the fact that 
again, looking at the analytics, he has reached a threshold at this point in his career, much later than most running backs, I'll add, because his first three or four years in the first three years in the league, he was essentially redshirting behind DeMarco Murray. Um, So he really didn't get a ton of workload until his third and fourth season. He has hit the point in terms of workload thus far where the numbers bear out he will start to precipitously decline if he is anything like most running backs. Now, we know Titans fans will quickly and rightly point out Derrick Henry, certainly not like most running backs, arguably not like any running backs. Um, And yet, just in terms of human nature, the, the way that the human body is made, the way that there's only a certain amount of tread on your tires before you're going to start to fall apart as a running back. Those joints are going to start to ache. You're going to start to deal with more soft tissue injuries. It's going to go downhill. Maybe you don't deal with injuries at all, but just your explosiveness is just, it's just going downhill. You see, you're way less efficient. That is the point that Derrick Henry has reached. And it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a graph where these wide receivers, they reach this workload and then it is straight down. And he's right here on the precipice of it. And you look at his numbers last year, despite having so many yards to the first uh, half or so of the season, his efficiency was down from what it had been the years before. Now, is that a result of teams realizing, oh, this is mother bleeping Derrick Henry. Like we should probably pay a little bit more attention to him than most running backs. Certainly that's the case. That can be the case that he, oh, he's less efficient because teams are paying more attention to him. That's part of it. However, I don't think that that's all of it. I think that there is some truth to the fact that although he can, what his superpower is, is he can handle the workload that you throw at him. Unlike any other back in the league, he can handle it. His efficiency is going down. And so is that going to lead the Titans to play him less and and get some snap share to some other running backs? Is that going to lead them to maybe change their identity a little bit and be less running heavy early in the season. Perhaps they save some of that for the, for later in the season or the postseason. I, I don't know. So in terms of what numbers I expect from him, assuming he is healthy all year and he's not had any significant injury in his NFL career besides his foot injury last year, which obviously cost him half a season. But outside of that, I don't believe he missed back-to-back games at any point in his career until last year. Assuming he's healthy and, and isn't missing back-to-back games or more, I would say if I had to put a number on it, I'd say probably 1,500 yards, nine touchdowns, um, which you know is certainly much higher than the numbers would bear out for a guy, again, analytically at this point in his career. But it would be probably more similar to Derrick Henry of 2018 or 19 than it would be to Derrick Henry of 2021 in his 2,000-yard season. Now, I say all of that with the disclaimer – I'm not going to bet against Derrick Henry because that's not bared out well for anybody at any point so far in human history. If he goes for 2000 yards, it's not going to surprise me really all that much. Um, I, I mean, like my, my logical brain will be impressed, but the part of my brain that is aware of who Derrick Henry is as an alien and a freak human being and having seen him up close. And I promise however big you think that he is, he is bigger. It won't shock me all that much because at the end of the day, he is still Derrick Henry and he is still built different. And I do think that he breaks most all of the molds for running back in the NFL. All right. So my second question to that second part of that question is if he has that type of year that you you talked about, do you think he's like a, on the cuffs of being a future Hall of Famer? Absolutely. I do. Absolutely. I do. He's a guy that 
if if you look at his record breaking statistics through his first handful of dominant years in the league. I mean, if you just take the the basic fact of, okay, how many other guys in NFL history were the rushing champion in terms of yards and back-to-back seasons, you look at the list. It's been since last season that I looked at this, but it's a list of 10 or less people. And it's like eight of the nine of them are hall of famers. And the ninth is Derrick Henry. And so, I mean, that's a pretty decent indicator to begin with. Now, if he retired today before ever playing this next season, do I think, okay, if Derrick Henry retired today, would he be a Hall of Famer? Well, it depends on how you measure Hall of Fame status. A lot of people like to think about for, you know, non-quarterback positions. Okay, how many years of their career were they a top five guy at their position? How many years of their career were they a top three guy at their position? And with Derrick, you'd say, okay, he's played five or six years now. He was a top five guy at his position, half of them, right? Three three consecutive years, he was a top five guy. So there's certainly an argument to be made there. The argument against it would be okay, the, the longevity. There's no longevity there. And a lot of the guys that at the running back position or in the NFL Hall of Fame are guys who, you know, sons, the Barry Sanders of the world, who were incredible but retired a bit early. They, but he was incredible long enough for it not to matter. Most of these guys, the, you know, the LTs, the future Adrian Petersons of the world, like not only were they ridiculously dominant in their prime, but they also lasted a long time and were an effective back for nearly a decade. Um, If not more than a decade. I mean, like you've got like guys like Frank Gore, who's in the hall of fame discussion at least. And he was never a top five running back in the, in the league at any point in his career. But you're like, Oh, if you just look at how many yards this guy's put up total and he played for freaking a hundred years. Okay. Maybe he belongs in the hall of fame. Now he's not a lock, but there's certainly a conversation there to be had with Henry. I think that he, he needs a little bit of both. He's got that front end of his, of his hall of fame career locked down at this point. If he were to be a 1000 yard per season running back for the next three years and then turn into an Adrian Peterson where he's kind of a mercenary and he's going around the league and, you know, he's got 500 yard seasons left and right. And so he's just, he's accumulating the yards. you know, so if he's got three more 1000 yard seasons and then a couple of 500 yard seasons and then calls it a career, dude's a hall of famer. So I really think it's a matter of, can he be not dominant anymore? Obviously I think that, I think that he can, but even if he can't, he doesn't have to be dominant anymore, but he has to be a viable starting running back for at least another year or two. However, if he goes out here out there this year and puts up an 1800 yard season and goes 15, 2,900 and half a season. And then another 1800, like that alone, I'll have to say, all right, he could retire tomorrow and probably be a hall of famer. So if I had to have a, a percentage chance at this point in his career odds, if I was putting odds on Derrick Henry to be in the hall of fame, as of right now, I'd say it's probably 80% chance that he ends up a hall of famer. Gotcha. Yes, that sounds good. Hey, Brian, you got anything that? Uh, what was I going to say? Um, this is kind of going back to the previous segment about Kyle Phillips. I agree 100% uh, uh, with you about that. Also, he can return point, uh, punts too, so he can add that special teams element too. Uh, Derrick Henry, I'm actually one of those people who think he's going to probably decline a little bit, but that may not be a bad thing because I feel like in order to win in the NFL – I don't think you can just have one really good back. I think you got to have at least two, maybe three really good running backs. That's just my opinion. Um, if you look at the teams that have won the Super Bowls, they've had 
running back by committee. So if we could have that, even though Derrick Henry would be the main guy, I think that would help the Titans moving forward. And then the Titans picked up or traded for Ugo Amadi. I actually know him. Um, I used to live in – I was born in Nashville. And where oh, right dad, on. Yeah, Did you go to Overton? No, I didn't. No, okay. I'm, it's kind of – I was born in Nashville and when I lived there a year, and then I moved to Jackson, Tennessee ever since. But uh, my mother is Nigerian. She has a lot of connections in Nashville. And they there you go. Yeah, yeah. So I was wondering, do you think he makes a roster? And if he does, what type of impact do you think he can have the Titans? Well, Brian, it's interesting because the Titans have so far this offseason, or not offseason, this preseason rather, they've really not made many moves outside of the safety position. But at the safety position, they've been kind of wheeling and dealing at a rate that makes you kind of raise an eyebrow. Like, what, what, what are they, what's the discontent here? At the top of the safety room, it's the best safety room in the league. You've got Imani Hooker and you've got Kevin Byard. Like, you can't, you can't beat that. You're not going to go out and find somebody to compete with that. And then, oh, you drafted Theo Jackson in the sixth round and he's a rookie out of Tennessee, but he's, you know, got some potential to, to play a, a decent amount. And then, uh, okay, you go and you move and you get Ugo Amade. Amadi and oh you you move and you get Lonnie Johnson from the Raiders and it's like well why why you you know you drafted a rookie and then you you moved off some guys you brought in some you traded you traded draft picks for this guy Ugo lo- local guy he, and Ugo is an interesting case because he was just traded to the Eagles he spent I think eleven days as a Philadelphia Eagle before they and the Eagles traded for him in the first place so bizarre and that just happened today as of recording I mean, recording this on on wednesday the 24th so it just happened a couple hours ago i've not wrapped my brain around fully why they made that move in particular but i can tell you this i think there's a decent chance that he makes the roster um if for nothing else the fact that they thought he was good enough to trade draft capital for at this point in the in the offseason i mean there's not going to be much time for him to get up to speed in terms of playbook he's going to have to make this team based off of pure ability and I don't think they would have traded away draft capital to get him if they didn't think, based on the tape, this guy has the physical traits to just wow us enough through his pure athleticism in practice that he won't need to have the the playbook down at a level that the other guys do in order to make make this team. Uh, he can catch up as he goes. And so I think there's a decent chance that he, he makes it. It's really going to depend on how many safeties they keep, obviously – their top two are set and you'd think they wouldn't move on from Theo Jackson who they just drafted and they, they, you know, they see some good potential in, although he's been dealing with injuries. So who knows they, they're not obligated to tell us injuries at this point in the year. And the Titans organization loves to do their best new England imitation all the time when it comes to information. And so we get uh, essentially none of it, which is annoying as a reporter, but that's just the way that it goes. So, um, you know, Theo Jackson, if he's maybe he's so injured, they felt like they had to move and, and get a guy like Ugo Amadi or, or Lonnie Johnson out of out of Las Vegas. I think both of those guys probably make this team. Um, so that's four. And then you've got Theo Jackson and AJ Moore fighting for safety five or maybe safety six. But that would really surprise me. Um, <clears throat> uh, oh, and Josh Kalu, who's technically listed as a safety on the depth chart I'm looking at. But that you don't care. That's a different thing. I don't think that he is. Um, all of that to say. Ugo, I think that he makes the roster. The broader point here being why they go get Ugo, what's because behind the top two safeties on this roster, the Titans are clearly concerned about their depth at this position, as demonstrated by their two relatively sneaky, significant moves in the last six days 
uh, to trade draft capital to these other teams um, in the league to to bring in some fresh faces. All right. See Barry got anything? I don't. I don't have anything. All right. Okay. All right, man. Last question, man. I got to ask you this one. All right. All right. So the Indianapolis Colts, they decide to part ways with uh, Carson Wentz, send him off to the Washington Commanders now, and in return, they brought uh, Matt Ryan in this place. They got uh, Jonathan Taylor, the Russian champion. Uh, Michael Pittman Jr. wide receiver that also made some additional uh, moves and obviously to make the team better. So with that being said, do you think the, the Indianapolis Colts are good enough to dethrone the Titans as the uh, AFC South champions this year? Do I think that they are good enough? Yes. Do I think that they will? No. I still mm. think that this is the Titans division. Um, I think that the Colts love per the usual arrangement in the offseason is overblown. Um, the Colts GM, Chris Ballard is BFFs for life with every national media member in terms of what, <laughs> what I mean, he, he clearly is, you hear these guys. No, I mean, it's yeah, I know. These, I know. these guys, these guys talk about him and the inside information that he gives them. Like they're all BFFs and like, good for him. He, he, like they, they, he scratches their back and they clearly scratch his by talking up the Colts every single year. I, I think I put out a meme that I made a couple of months ago um, about, about uh, it was a, it was a flow chart circle and it was four it was four spots. And it was like uh, Colts move on from quarterback Colts hyped up as the clear favorites in the AFC South Colts fall apart. Titans win division. <laughs> repeat and there's an arrow to Colts getting hyped up as the clear favorites and it was like you are here and that's where we are we're right here um and so the Colts are the clear favorites I suppose um in the division. Here. now if the conversation was oh man the Colts they improved this offseason the Colts are gonna you know they may be neck and neck with the Titans this may be a, a two-horse race all the way down the stretch I can get with that all day I think that that's probably the case I think that they pretty clearly upgraded at the quarterback position although I I don't think in terms of his play, um, Wentz was not nearly as bad. I mean, clearly the reason they moved on from Wentz, I'll just say this. If Wentz was the perfect guy in the locker room, was the perfect teammate, perfect locker room guy, they would not have moved on from him after that season. Even with the the disastrous play in the last week, they would not have moved on from him. Statistically, it, it doesn't make sense. There had to have been yeah. behind the scenes. He just was not a, a great guy in the locker room. And uh, the team wasn't able to really rally behind him. And, and so that's why they moved on. With Matt Ryan, I see them much more like they were in 2020 with Phillip Rivers. I think Matt Ryan has more in the tank than Rivers did in 2020. However, I think Rivers had a better supporting cast than Ryan's going to have this year. Um, I think it's it's really underplayed some of the concerns this Colts team has. Their defense certainly is still going to be serviceable at the very least, if not a top 10 defense in the league. They've got some nice young talent. They've got a, a, a really nice front four. Um, the dudes like DeForest Buck Buckner on that team are, are certainly always going to be wreaking havoc. You know, you've got Shat and now Shaq Leonard. I'm still getting used to saying that. Uh, <laughs> who's 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 incredible. However, he's still questionable in terms of his health to even start the season. He's had, and I'm certainly not a Colts insider, but from what I hear, he's had back issues and his back surgery is taking a bit longer than usual to recover from. He's still not full go in practice. He's obviously not playing in the preseason. He's still not a lock to necessarily be there available for the team to begin the year. 
if that's the case, that's a dramatic blow considering he's top one or two at his position in the league. Um, you had some turnover at the cornerback position. They went and got Stefan Gilmore, who you'd think still has something left in the tank. However, at his age, you never know. Um, they've had some turnover at the safety position. One of their starters walked away from the team in order to, to pursue a career in um, preaching and in and, and his faith, which as a you know Christian, I think is fantastic for him, but from a football standpoint sucks for the Colts because he's a starting safety and they just, he's just no longer on the team. They've, had an issue with starting players just up and walking away at inopportune times, not to bring up any old scars. However, I think that this team um, is, <laughs> I think that this team is, is, is a good one. And I think that they're going to certainly contend for the AFC South title. They are similar to the Titans in this sense to me. And with the Titans, you certainly hear this talked about with the, with the Colts, you'll notice suspiciously, you kind of don't gun to my head. You tell me that the Colts fell apart this season. What was it? I don't think it's quarterback. Matt Ryan, he's a solid quarterback. He's still got something in the tank. Matt Ryan, like you saw, he everything was going right for him in, in Atlanta. The circumstances were perfect for him to fall apart, and he never did. He never did. He was not the reason they were losing all those games. He, they were losing despite him most of the time. Um, so it's not the quarterback. I don't think the defense is ever going to get bad enough to for this team to fall apart. Um, you know, wider similar again, similar to the Titans, their wide receiver room, highly questionable. Michael Pittman is a, a proven commodity at this point, but outside of that, Alec Pierce out of Cincinnati, who coming out, I thought was a really nice prospect. And that hasn't, you know, that I'm not a Homer or anything like just cause he's a Colt. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm not like, Oh, he's, he's garbage. Now I, I think that he's going to be quite good. Um, I, I thought that he was going to be quite good. And in that offense, I think that he can be quite good. I just don't know how soon he'll be ready to be quite good with all rookie receivers for the most part. Um, but outside of that, you know, Paris Campbell, who the Colts have seemingly been talking about, like, oh, this is Paris Campbell's year. And it's been that for three years and it's not been Paris Campbell's year yet. So I'll believe it when I see it. Um, so the wide receiver room's suspect, but it's going to be, I mean, it'll be fine. Like Matt Ryan has made do with less in the past couple of years. So in the running back position, okay, Jonathan Taylor, he, he's not going to be the reason. Oh, so that leaves the offensive line. Funny how you don't hear anything about the Colts offensive line concerns. Well, outside of their stud Quentin Nelson, their offensive line is incredibly suspect. They have a bit of Dallas Cowboys itis when it comes to national um national perception of their of their offensive line. With the Dallas Cowboys in like 2015, their line was incredible and murdering everybody in the league and rightfully so, they got the credit for that, like, oh, Cowboys line, like, you you know the Cowboys line, they're going to get the job done. And that was the case for a couple of years in the mid-2010s. However, the year was 2019, 2020. Some could argue it's still the case now. And people were like, oh, man, you know Dallas Cowboys line? And it's like, hey, man, that was three years ago. Like, their line is really suspect now, and it's leading to a lot of issues on offense. Like, we got to – we got to – your take is old. You got to move on from the past. The Colts offensive line, 2016, 2017, prime prime years of Quentin Nelson, uh, Quentin Nelson rather, at the very end of Andrew Luck's career, too late to save Andrew Luck, unfortunately, for the Colts. Their offensive line was really, really fantastic. But now it's 2022, and it's like three or four years removed from that. And outside of Quentin Nelson, there's a lot of big question marks. And that lends itself to a lot of trouble when you have these two factors, 
a team that is really reliant on their running back, Jonathan Taylor, who just like Derrick Henry is reliant all running backs, no matter how good you are, you're reliant on your offensive line. So he can be limited by a poor offensive line. And then you've got a really old pocket. I mean, really old in terms of QB years, pocket passer QB back there who you need to protect in order for him to be effective. So I'm not sure that their offensive line situation is being talked about nearly as much in a funny way. And this is the way that it happens in in divisions. A lot of the time they, they and the Titans mirror each other in a lot of ways in the sense that, okay, they're big, like flashing red light on the dash in terms of engine trouble is wide receiver, but most importantly, offensive line. It's the case for both teams. And so I think it's a matter of whose is going to step up will probably be the determining factor in which of these teams wins the division. And I think the Titans have the upper hand there. So you think the Titans will win the division once again for the uh, the third year in a row, right? I do. I do. I think the Titans will win the division. Um, I I think that the Colts will probably be, I mean, there'll certainly be a playoff contender. I think both teams, I think regardless of what what happens and who wins, I think that a lot of people, because the the AFC is so stacked this year, have kind of written off the entire South as, Okay, they're going to get an automatic bid. Somebody's going to get in. But other than that, like the AFC playoff wildcard picture is going to be everywhere else. I, I think it's very possible, if not even possible, I think it's very likely that the AFC playoff picture includes both the Titans and the Colts in in one order or another, you know, by mid-December. And it's very likely that, you know, they're both in the race and, and certainly possible that both of those teams end up in, in the playoffs over some other teams in the AFC that you think would, would be prime contenders for that, like the Broncos or the Raiders or whoever it may be. And so yeah. um, I, I, I think that and part of that is just by by the fact that the, the Titans and the Colts both get four games against the Jags and the Texans and some a lot of these other teams do not. And so that's a, a built-in advantage that they have. Um and so, yeah, I think that both teams are more likely to make the playoffs than not. And I think that it will probably come down to who can get the hotter start. Both teams had a, a significant amount of turnover at important positions this offseason. And so that kind of lends itself to, okay, who can get their bearings uh, quicker in the NFL uh, season? You know, the, the Colts have been notorious the last couple of years for having a slow start. And when you have turnover at the quarterback position, that tends to be the case. So I would give the the upper hand to the the Titans because I think they have just a bit more continuity that's important to get off to a, a nice start. So you're saying that both the Colts and the Titans could get in the playoffs over teams like the Broncos, the Raiders, Baltimore, Miami. A lot of hobbies have been hype has been built up about uh, Miami. Absolutely, absolutely, there has been, and I yeah. think rightfully so. However. Yeah, I think that the, the Titans and, the, and the, the Colts getting four games against two of, if not the two easiest teams in the conference are, is a massive built-in advantage. I think both of them are kind of slept on in terms of their ability to, I mean, the AFC South has always been slept on just in, by dearth of being the smallest market collectively of, of the NFL. I mean, Houston, Jacksonville, Nashville, and Indianapolis, you put all four of those markets together and it is clearly the smallest market group of the NFL. And so they're going to get the small market team treatment. That's just the way that that goes. And that's going to be getting written off more often than they are more often than they are hyped up. And so, yeah, I, I, I could totally see the Titans and the Colts finishing, you know, 10 and seven and 11 and six in one order or another and, and claiming a, 
uh, wild card spot as well as the division spot and people being surprised that, uh, Oh man, like the, the, the Broncos are left out of the playoffs. Oh man. The, the dolphins are left out of the playoffs. Here's one. Oh man. The Bengals are left out of the playoffs. Oh wow. Would you look at this? These other three divisions, they cannibalize themselves because they have so many great teams. Okay. That's sound reasonable. Um, what folks can find you at on uh, Twitter. Yeah, I saw at Easton Freeze on Twitter. You can follow me, all my football coverage. I cover the NFL, obviously focused on the Titans. Uh, I'm the director of published content at broadwaysportsmedia.com. So we cover all things Nashville sports, including the Titans, of course. So if you have any interest in that, come on over to broadwaysportsmedia.com. And then I'm also the host of the Hot Read podcast on the Broadway Sports Media and 440 Network here in town. Um, Have a ton of great guests on a couple of shows a week covering all things Titans in the NFL. So check me out there. All right, folks, that's all we have for y'all for right now. Give us a like, comment, subscribe to the channel. Let us know how you feel. Visit to this through uh, Spotify or Apple. Give us a five-star rating. Let us know your concerns. Anything you have to say about the coach. Have a blessed night. Peace. We out. Thank you.